You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. When wickedness comes, contempt comes also, and with dishonor comes disgrace. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. A fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are a snare to his soul. The words of a whisperer are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. A rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his imagination. Before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit, who can bear? An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. A man's gift makes room for him, and brings him before the great. The one who states his case first seems right, until the other comes and examines him. The lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. From the fruit of a man's mouth, his stomach is satisfied. He is satisfied by the yield of his lips. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from Yahweh. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Yours truly, Garrett Ashley Mullet, coming to you from Greeley, Colorado, for episode 382 of this podcast. We are just tick, tick, ticking away, one at a time, counting up every episode. Be sure to go back and listen to some of the recent episodes before we get to 400. At least once we get to 400, you'll have some idea of some of the big hitters. There have actually been some really Strong episodes in terms of overall interest. Lots of new listeners picked up over this season, in particular since the beginning of the year. Very excited about that. I think that the book reviews have attracted some like-minded folks who enjoy hearing talk about everything. And, of course, included in everything, talking about everything, we have to not just get facts. We don't want just knowledge, 
just random observations unconnected to one another, details that amount to trivia and are therefore trivial. We want understanding. That's the reason why you try to get knowledge. You want understanding. And why do you want understanding? Well, so that you can make good decisions, so that you can relate to reality in a way that will be blessed, in a way that is profitable, in a way that is beneficial. There is nothing whatsoever wrong with looking for profit, but we have to think holistically about what is profitable. Like Jesus asks in the Gospels, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? If you're only thinking in materialistic terms, you might say, well, profits him as much as it possibly can. What else could you want but the whole world? But the essence of the question that our Savior asks there really challenges the materialistic view by asserting that there is such a thing as the soul. And so, yes, we should be not so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. That is a bad thing. And actually, it's a contradiction in terms. If you say, I am so heavenly minded that I'm of no earthly good, which of course no one ever says of themselves, it's only ever said about them by other people. But if you say, that, and it is true, I'm so heavenly minded that I'm of no earthly good, then it really does uh, contradict itself. It's not possible to be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Not really truly. If you are heavenly minded, then you will be considering what is the purpose for God having put me here on earth? And am I honoring that purpose? Am I serving the Lord with my life? Am I investing the talents that have been entrusted to me by the master to whom I will have to give an account when the master returns. But towards the end of getting not just knowledge, but also understanding and wisdom and believing as we do that life and death are both in the power of the tongue. The power of life and death are both in the tongue, in what we say. As Proverbs 18, which I just read for you in its entirety, asserts among many other things, that are particular, specific, drilling down deeper. Towards the end of that, I want to talk about some of the features here in Proverbs 18, and especially where we read that the first to state his case seems right, or in the English Standard Version, the one who states his case first seems right. What dangers lurk ahead from which we should hide ourselves and secure ourselves against if it is not possible for the first to state its case to be cross-examined. That's the thrust of this episode. And we'll get into some other things that we've touched on in recent episodes, of course. We want to tie those in and add to them and connect some ideas that have been brought up uh, sometimes I realize when I listen back through earlier episodes that I've touched on something that I have a great deal more to say and I want to say more about. And there's only so much time in each episode, so you have to prioritize. But in this episode, I want to prioritize especially something I keyed in on on our last episode. Namely, that censorship online or even dare I say it, in the church, 
really does make us foolish. It makes us more vulnerable to bad ideas, bad ways of thinking, bad ways of relating. It really does make us vulnerable, and not just in a materialistic sense, also in a spiritual sense. It actually is a matter of spiritual importance, how we steward what we have physically here on earth. Now, someone will say, and very often is the first one to state his case when he says this, that this earth is not our home as Christians. We are strangers in a strange land like Abraham was. This earth is not our home. And if you believe, as we read in the New Testament, that we are exiles after a fashion, that what we read about Old Testament exiled Jews in Babylon, carried off into captivity, is relevant to us in any way, shape, or form. It has to be on that point that we are exiles of a sort. We are foreknown. We are the elect if we are in Christ. God has chosen us from eternity past. And so, yes, the kingdom come is our inheritance as heirs of the promise. Yes, that's true. And we're not there just yet. If you're listening to this podcast, I can only assume that you are still in the land of the living. You have not yet passed on. I don't I don't assume that I'm speaking to any ghosts, <laughs> any uh, departed saints. I suppose we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. And so they might be listening in as well, but they know better than I do in that case. And so my counsel is not for them as if it would benefit them. They have all that they need or all that they can hope to get, and they're set. But as for us on this side of eternity, before Christ returns or calls us home, we should think a little bit more deeply about reminders that this earth is not our home or that we are exiles or that we are strangers in a strange land. We should think a little more deeply about that and be careful not to be flippant in saying such things without considering their ramifications, considering their implications. I'm fond here the past year or two of Jeremiah chapter 29, where the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, is writing the words of the Lord to the exiles in Babylon. They are in the Babylonian captivity. And his word from the Lord actually not like people who pretend to get a word from the Lord, but it's really just what they want you to think. His word from the Lord is that those in the Babylonian captivity should build houses, plant gardens, take wives, have children, pray for the city and its welfare, seek the welfare of the city, for in its welfare it, they will find their welfare. And so if that's in any way relevant to us, we should be giving a great deal of thought to what that looks like. Not just twiddling our thumbs, not biding our time, not sitting on rooftops because Jesus is coming back any moment now, any instant now. He might be, but if he comes back in five minutes, if you listening to this podcast episode is interrupted by the return of Christ, the return of the King then may he find us busy and diligent and hard at work, investing well the talents that he's entrusted us with. So that's one thing. Another thing is 
where I talked yesterday about Tim Keller and his tweet and then his subsequent thread bemoaning the fact that, as he says it, most American evangelicals have no idea how to coherently apply the Bible to politics, and they are being divided over political differences. I would strongly caution you to allow Tim Keller to be cross-examined. He is the first to state his case, as is often so, for those on the left. But he does need to be cross-examined, and it is not divisive to cross-examine. It is prudent. Consider the example of the Bereans who searched the scriptures daily to see whether Paul and Barnabas's gospel was correct. Worst case scenario, if you are searching the scriptures in good faith, you will find what you have been told confirmed and you will be persuaded fully in your own mind. But if you're being sold a bridge to nowhere, then you will have protected yourself and everyone around you as well. And so that's what we have to do. We have to get in the practice of that. No less, only all the more, as there is now a board of misinformation, disinformation uh, watchers at the Department of Homeland Security. This is a law enforcement, domestic, national, here at home, uh, law enforcement body that is tasked with finding people who are questioning the official narrative, the official talking points, and looking askew at them as though they might be, no shock to anybody, or it shouldn't be, uh, Russian agents or bots or subversives, seditious, literally the January 6th crowd who stormed the Capitol. Although I would say it looks from some of the footage that I saw before the internet was scrubbed of such images and video clips, it looked to me very much like a lot of those January 6th protesters were let in and even invited in. And I don't think that this was some premeditated plan on the part of all those who have been detained indefinitely, have been charged. I think it's curious that some of the charges have been as mild as they have been. But you don't hear a lot about it. You hear a lot of very vague and fuzzy references in passing. Since our media likes to do that, they like to repeat very superficial things over and over and over again, and then make much of very little, but they don't like to have substantive in-depth back and forth cross-examination. And for that matter too, I mean, some of what's here in Proverbs 18 really should be sent as a memo to our professional journalists and commentators. It really should. They could stand for all our sake to meditate on Proverbs 18. Verse 13 here, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. The biggest gripe that I have, and I'm including the Fox News crowd, uh, no less, not in the least bit less, than the MSNBC, CNN, etc. crowd. But the biggest gripe I have in watching any of these mainstream media outlets, whether they present themselves as conservative or they present themselves as extremely far left, 
Most of them present themselves as extremely far left. But my biggest gripe is when you get a panel discussion of people who are supposed to disagree or have different viewpoints, different perspectives on this, different opinions on this or that, you know, whatever the topic seems to be, if it's important in the least, all too often, it feels like a setup and it feels as though the deck is stacked against whoever is going to be communicating the opinion that the producer doesn't want you to have. The executive doesn't want you to hold. They invite somebody, almost like a weakened strain of some virus as they see it. They invite that person on and then that person can't get a word in edgewise and it's a whole lot of gotcha and it's a whole lot of interruption and it's a whole lot of talking over each other and it's a whole lot of ad hominem and logical fallacies. And I feel like that makes us all dumber. Whether we agree with or disagree with the person who is speaking, that makes us all dumber. And it's actually to our great shame as a society that we eat that up and we share clips of that and we want more of it. We shouldn't tolerate as much of it as we have. And we certainly should not be asking, please, mom, may I have another? Please, mom, may I have some more? No, actually, no more. I'm not going to watch. If you if you guys are going to act like this, I'm out. This is a waste of time. This is corrosive. And this is actually toxic. This is making us all dumber. What I would love to see come back is the Lincoln-Douglas debate style. I would love to see that come back. Get somebody up there with their political opponent and have them each speak without interruption for an hour. This guy gets to talk for one hour on this range of topics. Go. Now you tell us all what you think we need to do, what your philosophy is, what your perspective is, what you're proposing, what you intend to do, and nobody is going to interrupt you and you won't have the excuse. You will not have the excuse of saying, well, you got interrupted and sidetracked and this person was trying to make you look dumb and all that. No, no. We have too much information at our fingertips to waste time watching dozens of hours, listening to dozens of hours, a week, a month, a year of uncivil discourse. We have too little free time and too much information to not have them get up there and explain at length what their position is. And then here's what you do. You don't give them an hour to speak uninterrupted and then that's it. And that's the end. And whoever their political opponent is, is fake news and subversive. And maybe a Russian agent, Russia, Russia, Russia. No, 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 no. Bring up their opponent to speak for an hour. And may the best man win. And when he's done cross-examining the first guy and explaining his position for an hour, then the first guy gets to go back up and speak for another hour. And then there's no claiming of funny business. There's no ground on which to say, ah, I was set up. It's rigged. No, you know, no. No. You know, the Republican National Convention made headlines here recently because apparently they have withdrawn from the Committee on Presidential Debates, which I think is a great idea. That's a great start. More needs to be done. That's not all there is to it. 
You need to have something else to fill that vacuum. You can't just say, not this. What are you for? But quite frankly, what I would love to see is bring back the Lincoln-Douglas style debates. And this really gets to another big topic that I want to talk about in this episode. And that is the question of talking over people's heads. Now, someone will say, most Americans are not going to be able to keep up with an hour of in-depth explanations on what so-and-so's policies and proposals are. You really get detailed on it and people aren't going to tune in and they're not going to understand it. And it's going to be just way over their heads. And most Americans just, they're not that savvy. They're not that familiar. They need sound bites. They need it simplified. They need it boiled down to 30 seconds. They need it delivered by their favorite beautiful person on the nightly news during prime time. And to that, I say bollocks, nonsense. Part of why we are not able to keep up is because we don't push ourselves. We don't challenge ourselves. The bar has been set too low. And if this were limbo, that would be a challenge, but it's not limbo. (laughs) The hurdle we're supposed to clear is insultingly easy to clear so that everybody wins. Everybody gets a trophy. We have applied this participation trophy mindset to the way that we talk about our political choices that we need to make as a country. And that needs to stop. The stakes are too high, not just for America, but for the world. The stakes are too high, not just for us who are here, but for those who preceded us. All their lives work, all of their sacrifice, their blood, sweat, and tears, even dying on fields of battle so that we could be good stewards of what we have been given thanks to them, what we've inherited from them. We owe it to previous generations to do better and to be better, to try harder and to set the bar higher. My great, great, great grandfather, George Fisher McFarland, lost the use of his legs at the Battle of Gettysburg so that the Union Army, the Union cause, emancipation of black slaves in this country could proceed apace. Lieutenant Colonel George Fisher McFarland lost the use of his legs for the rest of his life as a young man so that we could do better and try harder. And it's not enough for the anti-racist crowd to say, ah, yes, we have a proposal. We have an idea or two or three. We have five-year plans worth of ideas for how to be better and set the bar higher, do more, evolve. Remember Proverbs 18, 17, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. So what we have in the case of the anti-racist crowd is actually a regression. It's not progress. They are not progressives, actually. They call themselves that very much like the Bolsheviks called themselves the Russian word for the majority. They were not the majority. They cowed and intimidated and bullied the majority into letting them 
run the country. And then they ran Russia right into the ground because they were idiots. Well, so also, if we give up on cross-examination, if we give up on critical thinking in the name of unity on Joe Biden's terms or inside the church on Tim Keller's terms, then we will become idiots, plain and simple. Verse 12, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. And we need to have a great deal more humility when it comes to discussing things about which even the very wise disagree. And I think this is actually why you want limited and small government. This is why you want federalism. This is why you want states' rights. This is why you want individual liberty. Because sometimes the answer to the question is just quite frankly, we don't know. We've debated it fully and we don't know. And that doesn't mean you shouldn't debate it either. So that's another overly simplistic thing that we rush to. And the first status case seems right until the other comes and examines him. And yet, because we have emphasized cohesion and unity uncritically, out of proportion, we have elevated it out of all proportion and moderation to other virtues and values, that kind of thinking does not get challenged. It doesn't get second-guessed. It doesn't get cross-examined. It is not balanced and checked, and it should be. A brother offended is more unyielding than a strong city, and quarreling is like the bars of a castle. And that's where we're at as a country, is we have brother against brother. And nobody wants to admit that they might be wrong, but that's where honor comes from, is humility. The humility to say, first of all, here's what I think, and here's why, and I'm going to state it in simple measured terms and not hyperbole, not exaggeration, not dishonesty, not so terrified that you could be right that I straw man your position. No, I'm going to steel man your position. I'll lead with what I think you're saying is this. And if you're right on this, 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 and this, I can see your point, but X, Y, and Z are concerns of mine that cause me to doubt that that is the way that this is. I believe you may be thinking some things which are just not so. And so what I propose is you answer these questions because maybe you have that knowledge that I don't have. So that's a humbling thing as well. I'm going to ask you these questions, not in an entrapping way, but in a persuade me, change my mind sort of a way. But there too, what I find so often when I talk with people who are dismayed at the state of public discourse, particularly on social media, is they'll say, well, you know, nobody's going to change their minds anyway, so we might as well not even talk about this. And to that, I would reply, you have committed us to being intractable. You have committed us to being unchangeable and inflexible. You've committed us to being stubborn by throwing in the towel before we even start discussing something we disagree about. We are bound for destruction if that is going to be our position, if that is going to be our attitude. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. There again, if the quest is for understanding and that quest is undertaken with humility, then yes, you can express your opinion, but you're not only 
interested in expressing your opinion. You are interested in, more importantly, more to the point, understanding. And insofar as your opinion may draw someone else out to give you information that you need, to give you a missing piece of the puzzle, yes, you will state your opinion, but you're not interested in stating your opinion as an end unto itself. You're interested in stating your opinion as a means to the end of increasing your understanding and the understanding of those listening to you. I think to myself, as I read through this proverb, we are in a dangerous, dangerous place. If the first to state his case is the only one allowed to state his case, if systems are put in place that ensure and guarantee that there is no one to examine the first who states his case, what that tells me is that spiritually speaking, we want to gain the whole world but forfeit our soul. And there's no defense for it. There is no excuse for it before God. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. And what we are reaping is the whirlwind. If we commit ourselves to the abolition of free speech in the church, outside the church. Yeah, and it would be one thing, right? It, it's one thing if everyone is free to operate according to the dictates of their conscience. And some say, I'd rather just not talk about X, Y, and Z, but I'll listen to what you have to say. I'm interested to get your opinion. That's fine. You might say that if you really haven't researched it. You really don't know what you think. You're really not sure one way or the other, but you're open to understanding the subject better. I really don't know what I think about this. I haven't studied it. I'm a finite being. I only have so much time, so much attention. Not everything interests me, but if this really interests you, I will be interested in you being interested. And so tell it, tell it to me. Explain this to me. Unpack it for me. And I'll ask you questions. This is actually, uh, in the worst cases, how you get the likes of Socrates <laughs> ingesting the likes of Hemlock. Because <laughs> that was the big trouble with Socrates, is that he went around questioning everyone who claimed to know so much and understand and be wise. And he would question them until they would get just absolutely red in the face, angry with him. And then at a certain point, a critical mass is reached of people having lost all patience with Socrates. And they accuse him. He stands trial. He is condemned. He has options. He could either be exiled or he can take poison and die. He chooses poison. Far be it from us to build our society in a way that so mocks previous generations who went before us. The worst part of these worthless anti-racist folks' efforts, the worst part of it is that they want to simplify down all of our history to nothing but a tale of the oppressors and the oppressed. Rich, white, wealthy, straight, Caucasian, Western European, Northern European, Anglo-Saxon, Protestant, male, patriarchal, Christian. Those are the buzzwords. Those are the trigger words 
that tell the anti-racist to just throw out and cast dispersions on whatever is in the historical record, whatever good this or that man or movement may have said or done, tear it down, destroy it. And meanwhile, on the other side of it, uh, verse 9 here in Proverbs 18 is also instructive. Whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. And what we've had, what is destroying our country, what is destroying America, is that on the left, we have a party of destruction. They want to destroy America, at least America as it has been. And they want to rebuild it in their own image. And on the right, you have far too many who are slack in their work. They have made an appearance of disagreeing, objecting to the left, but they're slack in their work. They're slack in their marriages, and so they give credibility to the LGBTQ crowd, the gender theory crowd, the feminist crowd. They're slack in building their marriages up. And so they leave an opening for the left to destroy the institution of marriage. They're slack in their parenting and their fulfillment of the responsibility they have to train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so they leave the opening wide open for the left to indoctrinate their children into radical critical race theory, gender theory, LGBTQ+, sexual immorality, and communism. The left wants to destroy your children, and the slackers on the right are brothers. They are accomplices through passive means. Burying their talents in the field, they should have taken that money and invested it in security systems and bodyguards, armed security, <laughs> patrolling the premises, metaphorically, spiritually, politically, philosophically, culturally. But they're slackers, right? They make an appearance of objecting to these things, but when it comes time to actually do something, to roll up their sleeves and do something to protect, to defend, to contend, to understand their content, to just express their opinion, and then do more, do, do, do no more about it, to do nothing about it. The name of Yahweh is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. And what does this mean? This is abstract. And here again, we need to raise the bar. You know, I just recently gave an apologetics talk for our youth group. And I'm not upset with the folks who gave me this feedback. I think it's good that they gave me the feedback that they did. And it's a, you know, maybe just a matter of disagreeing opinions. And I could be wrong, right? I'm not, hopefully, just expressing my opinion only taking pleasure in expressing my opinion. Uh, but here's the, here's my perspective. I will state my opinion, and I do think that it's correct, and I want to be cross-examined if I'm missing something. So please, come one, come all. I delivered a 20-minute apologetics talk on denominations, why there are so many, and does that undermine the validity of Christianity, the truth of the Christian message and worldview. And after 20 minutes, I talked with two and I won't say who, but I talked with two uh, men I love and respect who were in attendance who told me uh, it was really great. Also, I think you were talking 
over the heads of all the middle schoolers. I don't think any of the middle schoolers probably understood what you were talking about <clears throat> or what to make of it, what to do with this information, why they should care, what to do with the information. So, yeah. Adult level, yes. High school level, yes. But middle schoolers, I think they were lost. And having heard that not just once but twice, in short order, I am not so sure that I regret speaking at the level that I did. And here's why. And I, I hope I'm not being stiff-necked. You know, I, They may have a point, right? But here's my point. And I think this can be a challenge back to the way the majority of us do these things. We speak at the level that we think kids are at, for instance, for example, and thereby we tell them what our expectations are. And if our expectations are low, then what they get by way of implication is that we really don't expect much of them. And so if we don't expect much of them, and if they do respect us, well, some of them might say, oh, cool, well, I can just coast. I'm not feeling challenged, but I'll just wander. My attention will wander to something else that is more challenging, more interesting, and I'm just going to have to make it up as I go. But you're not challenging me, so okay. Or they may be riddled with doubt as to their own ability to comprehend. You know, suppose my 15-year-old, almost, almost 15-year-old, is working out every day. And you say, that's good. It's wonderful. I think he is working out most days, but you say, that's good. And let's say he's working out with five pound weights. And you say, well, okay, that might be all right, depending on what he's doing with the five pound weights. And, you know, but 15, he's, you know, he maybe is not challenging himself enough. You know, so, so then you start saying, well, okay, well, what would be more appropriate? And you don't necessarily say that for a 15-year-old the same challenge is appropriate. And this is where the guys who gave me the feedback have some point. You know, you don't say to your 15-year-old, here are 50-pound dumbbells necessarily. I mean, depending on the 15-year-old, it might be their speed. But you don't say, hey, here's you know 50-pound dumbbells, and I want you to work out with these every day, especially if they need to build up their strength to get to that level. But the reverse is also true. You don't say to your 15-year-old, hey, here's your five-pound dumbbell, and you've mastered that, and you're not ready for 50, and so just keep working out with a five, and you'll get there. No, actually, if all you ever work out with is five, then you're, not, you're probably not building muscle mass, strength, endurance. Like, it maybe is better than nothing that you're just getting the blood flowing, but... If you've mastered the five pounders, have you tried 10? And if those are too easy, have you tried 15? And if those are too easy, have you tried 20? And let's say I put some 25 pound weights in the middle of the floor and my almost 15 year old can do 10 reps, uh, bicep curls with those. And my almost 14 year old can do seven reps. And my son who will be 13 at the end of December can do four reps, and I am challenging all of them to be able to do 
three sets of 10 reps or something like that. You know, what I don't say is, ah, okay, my 13-year-old, he's only able to do four, so there's no benefit here. What I say is, okay, well, you know, giving you a taste of this gives you a preview of why you should maybe be really diligent working with the 15-pound weights or the 10-pound weights, right? So there's still a benefit there. There's still a benefit. And what you have to say sometimes is, it's like, okay, if there's any benefit whatsoever, especially with a mixed group, especially with a kind of one-room schoolhouse sort of a situation, then let's talk at a level that is going to be a challenge for everyone. And those who don't care, it really doesn't matter how low you set the bar. They're checked out anyways. So don't don't cater to them. If anything, maybe all the more double down on, okay, we're going to set this above your capacity and maybe we'll get your attention. Maybe Maybe you checked out because you weren't being challenged. Who knows? But what you don't want to do, and public schools do this way too often, what you don't want to do is you don't want to say, we're going to aim for the middle, and then the kids at the top of the class are just like, this is too obvious. This is insulting to my intelligence. This is boring. This is not stimulating. You don't want that. If you can stretch them just a little bit, and the next group down, you're stretching a little bit more because it's a little bit more above their heads. And the next group down, it's almost even just a like reminder that they have work to do. Well, maybe that doesn't pay a dividend today, but maybe it pays a dividend over the next year, over the next two years, over the next three years. Maybe what it teaches them is, hey, I'm going to have to really pay attention, right? Because here's the thing, right? Like here's, in my view, if I'm putting myself in the shoes of someone who's listening to a lecture that's over my head. I don't want to be talked down to like, this is a power play. This guy's trying to assert dominance. He's just like trying to prove how smart he is. And this is an ego trip. No, you know, however much he's speaking at his level or talking at whatever level he thinks I'm at, that is a quick way for me to just be like, no, this is a joke. This is dumb. But from there, somebody in good faith might, really, really simplify it. They might say, hey, here's where we're at. And that also, it's like, you. yes, I know you mean well, but also you think I'm an infant and I'm losing respect for you there. Like, bless your heart, but I'm not stupid. So, okay. Versus when somebody starts explaining, rattling off to me a whole bunch of high-level stuff that I really don't understand, but they seem to genuinely think I can get it, that increases my confidence, that boosts my confidence that I can, in fact, get this. I can, in fact, understand it, even if I don't yet, if I apply myself. And there, too, I might say, like, oh, well, I'm flattered that you think I'm going to get this, but you, too, are maybe a little you know, naive. But I think we can do this strategically, and I think if we did this from a cultural standpoint particularly where it comes to matters of theological importance, we would find that our kids pick up a great deal more than we would expect. I I think that we need 
desperately to increase the average level of comprehension for matters of theological importance, issues of theological warfare, political issues, philosophical questions, dilemmas, debates. There's nothing inherent. I'll put it this way. There's nothing inherent to the age of a middle schooler which is a limiting factor for their being able to understand what a denomination is, why there are denominations, what to make of it. You know, for that matter, if you were to crack open a book from 100 years ago, 150 years ago, what kids were reading at 12, 13, 14 years old, I think many of us would be shocked. I think many of us would be very, very, very surprised at what kids were reading 100 years ago, 150 years ago. And part of the reason why they were reading those things is not because they were so smart. I think part of the reason they were reading those things and our kids are not, by and large, is because we don't set the bar very high for our kids. We're we're content for them to be juvenile. We make allowances for it. And I don't, again, I don't say that to be critical, but you know, this is of a piece with the uh, you know, marriage rate business. You know, I listened to a Paul Washer sermon. Paul Washer talks tough and he likes to really get after the guys, really get after the men. You young men, you just work with da da da. He's like a drill instructor for boot camp. And it's like, you don't need to be that way. In fact, it would be better if you weren't acting that way, I think. The poor use entreaties, but the rich answer roughly. Uh, he answers roughly like he is rich in the minds of the folks who listen to him in any event. But he's talking about 13-year-olds in some African tribe who go out and have their rite of passage, and they kill a lion, and they bring its skin back, and they hang it on the side of the house wall, the house that they've just built with their own hands too because that was part of their rite of passage, and they're ready to take a wife and provide for her and have children all that stuff. They are a man. And for us in our society, our young men don't actually become men until they're 35 years old. And that is by choice. That is because we set our expectations so very low for young men. And it doesn't start, we don't start setting our expectations so low when they're 18 years old. No, we start setting our expectations low for them when they're five, when they're three. You know, one of the things that people are just continually impressed by, it seems like, and this is not supposed to be humble bragging. This is just outright bragging. <clears throat> I'll, I'll own it. But one of the things that people are impressed by, and I'm very proud of this, is that all of our kids are very well-spoken and not pretentious. Uh, they speak very conversationally, and they can keep up in conversation with an adult. And the reason for that is I am pretty adamant. I'm, I'm pretty relentless about baby talk. Do not, do not <laughs> talk baby talk to my kids or anybody's, please. But I mean, if they're your kids, like, okay, well, it's between you and the Lord, but I don't approve but do not talk to my kids. Do not talk, baby talk to my kids, however young they are, please. 
And be cheerful. Yes, that's fine. Yes, you can use simplified language with my three-year-old, almost four-year-old. Yes, you can be very enthusiastic when you're trying to get baby Andrew to smile. That's one thing, but do not do the baby talk thing. Oh, who's a good boy? Oh, you're such a No, you sound like an idiot. And if they imitate you, if they talk like you do, if they learn those speech patterns from you, they're going to sound like an idiot. Don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, what we do is what I do is I just, I talk to them like this. I talk to them like this and I watch, right? I watch to see is the recognition. And if they ask me genuinely to define a term or a concept or what is this or what is that? What is this word? I don't know that word. What is this term? I don't understand that. Then we have an opportunity to have a teachable moment. Then we have an opportunity for me to unpack that. An opportunity that I would not have with them if I just skipped using that word. Yes, 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 yes. I I know what you'll say. You'll say, well, sometimes we just don't have time, right? Sometimes it's just, hey, I need action on this item. So I'm going to use simple language. That's fine. But we really should make the time whenever possible, whenever we can. Challenge our young people so that they are not adolescents still when they're 35 years old. I mean, quite frankly, I look at my 14, almost 15-year-old, and I think to myself, okay, there's lots more to learn. There's lots more growing up to do. Yes, absolutely. We're going to make the most of the next few years. Absolutely. But if we lived in another country and the economic situation was different, if we got, if we got nuked, I'll put it this way. Here's a, a I, who doesn't love, but I, I certainly do. Hypotheticals that involve post-apocalyptic scenarios in which you're just rebuilding society from scratch. I, I think they're great. Um, I'm sure they'd be less fun if they actually happened, but I, you know, for a thought exercise, you know, it's not much better. But you know, let's say we get nuked and. <clears throat> We're building society from the ground up again where everybody who got the COVID vaccine dies and there's all these, you know, homes sitting empty. And so you just, hey, you know, houses are selling for pennies on the dollar. You know, my son, if if he were in a parallel universe, parallel dimension, post-apocalyptic scenario, if he were out on his own in a year, and had his own place and his own vehicle and he can drive. I would trust that he has the bearing and the frame of mind and a serious attitude to where we've prepared him. We've prepared him to be a man. Now we're not going to send him out on his own in a year, you know, barring World War III breaks out and everybody gets nuked and we're starting over again fresh. But that's that's more the way that I want to teach my young people in any event. I want to prepare them to be asking questions when things don't make sense. I want to give them practice with things not making sense. That's the thing of it. And if they're not asking questions, well then, are they going to be in trouble in five to ten years? Are, are they? 
the answer is yes. This is a rhetorical question, but yes, they are going to be in trouble in five to 10 years when they're told things that don't make sense and they don't challenge it. Sometimes things don't make sense because we don't understand. Sometimes things don't make sense because they're nonsense. So our children need to learn how to cross-examine and they need to be growing up in an environment where there is cross-examination and there is a testing and a validating and a process of determining is this true? Is it not true? Is that correct? Is that not correct? Is that good? Is that not good? Real briefly, before we close out, an article was sent to me by a friend of mine in Montana. Uh, and I'm sure this is exactly the kind of article that the Department of Homeland Security is going to be trying to stop the distribution of online very shortly if they can get away with it. Or they will be trying to go after people who share this kind of stuff online if they can get away with it. But <clears throat> it's this blog called Between Two Worlds, The Art of an American Surviving in Small Town Russia. And it's an interesting perspective. And, and we need to be able to read and consider and hear perspectives like this without either knee-jerk reaction, rejecting them out of hand, or uncritically believing them and that they're entirely reliable and trustworthy. But the long and short of it would seem, from my reading of this one blog post, that there is a former American Marine, or once a Marine, always a Marine, I don't know, but there's a, a Marine from America who has moved to some small town in Russia. And he's writing these blog posts from Russia, talking about how all of this is playing out from his vantage point, from what he's seeing and experiencing and, you know, what, what he's seeing in the news, what he's experiencing when he goes to try and buy some food from the store or transfer money around or buy and sell or whatever. What does he know of the situation? What is he hearing from people there in that community? And let's just say, to be brief, uh, he does not believe that Western leaders like Biden, uh, like our current American administration, are telling the truth uh, at all. He doesn't think Zelensky's a good, a good guy, doesn't think Biden's a good guy. He thinks that this is a lot of propaganda and, frankly, lies on the part of the West, and that Putin is not evil. Putin is actually uh, maybe the good guy here. And here's the trouble. Here's the trouble. We have lost so much credibility when it comes to the reporting of news events and discussion of current events and kicking around of ideas. We've lost so much credibility in this country and the world is seeing that we're not so sure about free speech anymore. We're not so sure about the free flow of information anymore. And what that does practically for our own people who go abroad and for the citizens of other countries is it erodes our credibility. It makes it easier. If Putin is a bad guy, which I think, I think Putin is a villain, but that doesn't mean that Zelensky is a good guy and it doesn't mean that Biden is a good guy. Biden is not a good guy. I, don't, I may not be sure what to think of Zelensky, honestly. I, I'm not an expert on Ukraine. I'm not an expert on Zelensky. I'm not an expert on Putin. I'm not an expert on Russia. I've read some 
But I know that Biden is not a good guy. <laughs> I know that. And I also know that it's chilling. It's very creepy and concerning and dangerous how the left, including but not limited to Joe Biden and his handlers, want to shut up anyone who criticizes them or challenges them or corrects them or seeks to hold them accountable in this country. And their answer for everything is Russia, Russia, Russia. It's always Russia. Someone tells them that they're wrong or looks like they might take power away from them or hold them accountable for bad deeds, for corruption, for malfeasance, for failure. Russia, 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 Russia. Oh, this is just what Putin wants. Bah, 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 bah. Really? Is it just me or does that seem like a cheap trick that's been overplayed? I mean, really, truly, friends, family, friends, Romans, countrymen, our children at a certain point need to be ready to wrestle with the geopolitical catastrophe that is more and more apparently taking form. We may have World War III on our hands in no time flat. And the world is, whatever it looks like in the next 10, 15, 20 years, you can pretty well bet your bottom dollar. It will not look like it did when we were growing up. And our kids have got to learn to think critically. They have to learn to discuss things openly. They have to learn to ask questions when things don't make sense, whether because they're not understanding and they need to get up to speed or whether because they're being sold a bill of goods, they're being misled, lied to, manipulated. It is really actually a matter of vast importance. So I might not quite have the right balance, I'll admit, but we need collectively as a society, as a culture, as a country, Americans, my fellow Americans, we need to come more my way on this. We just do. I might need to come back the other way, just a touch, while we're getting up to speed, but we've got to come my way on this more. That's all the time I got for this episode, though. It's a Sunday morning. I need to jump back into work. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.